Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme, my guests today, Benoit Zog and Marcus Sugar, they're both here with their views of the biggest stories. Of course, Christmas is coming, many other things. We've got a lot to cover, but Benno's here. He's very excited. I believe he's got the Financial Times open up. Are we starting there or what do you want to talk about today? Well, it's been quite a week. I don't even know where to start. I mean, we've had the liberation of Kherson in Ukraine. We've had the US midterm elections. We've had stock markets going crazy. And another miracle we didn't expect, China relaxing its quarantine rules. So a lot to talk about. Imagine also beginning the latest news from France and beyond. My name is Mary Fitzgerald and I'll be bringing you the latest for France and North Africa. And then we speak to Miriam Zumbul about her new movie about one of the best cheesemakers in the world. It's the 13th of November, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from a Zurich which has a rather soupy lid on it this morning. I'd love to say that it is bright and sunny here. I, there could be a promise of it later, but uh, but right now it's typical autumn here. Uh, we're waiting for those uh, clouds to lift. I'm also very happy to say that uh, Marcus Schugel is here. He's the Associate Professor at St. Gallen University Institute for Marketing. Also, as you heard at the top of the program, Beto Zog is here, Monocle's well, he's our security correspondent. I was just going to say Monocle 24s, but he's been our, been our security correspondent. You're still our security correspondent for a few more weeks, but I don't know if we're going to have sort of, you know, farewell balloons, etc. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about your new gig a little bit later. But good morning to to both of you. Morning. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, maybe, Marcus, I want to start with uh, with you. This uh, this is an interesting uh, time of year. Uh, I feel like you've sort of been with us at the same time these at least these past two years as well as we move in to one of the craziest uh, seasons in the world of marketing. I just came back from uh, from the U.S. this week, and it's just amazing watching the American marketing retail machine kick into gear right now. The run up to Thanksgiving, the run up to Christmas, uh, and uh, yeah, all, all channels. Uh, in every form seem to be blaring uh, with the world of buy a little bit more this year. Yeah, and even starting out in, just on Friday, Singles Day started out, so the big discount weeks are coming up with Black Friday and all that stuff. I'm not quite sure if it will work this year as well as everybody's hoping for. On the other hand, you've got co- collision of big events. You've got the World World Cup coming up in, in pre-Christmas times where advertisers, as just the Swiss newspapers are pronouncing, are spending less money on advertising and communication on that one. And we have those layoffs in the United States in the creative scene around the digital big ones, which is sort of uh, a good sign, a bad sign. I don't know. I had some discussions around this this week, and I think uh, there's a lot of movement going on, more than I would have expected for the Christmas times. Indeed. Well, we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in the world of digital marketing or not uh, a little bit uh, later. Uh, ben, you uh, you sort of touched on a couple of stories, and before we head over to London to chat, chat, chat to Andrew, of course, you uh, were, were citing what has happened and what is happening um, right now uh, in Ukraine, in Kherson, and, uh, and watching this evacuation away still still unfolding in in many ways uh your impression because this morning so many interesting narratives you look at one paper let's not get overconfident meaning we ukraine should not get overconfident uh, about all of this we don't know how of course moscow is going to behave again uh probably feeling a, a little bit uh yeah certainly bruised uh, from all of this uh your impression from uh, your security correspondent perch this morning <laughs> indeed there's some really interesting development mixed ones that we should all look at somewhat somewhat separately first of all obviously um 
the only proper major town that Russia could occupy is now liberated. And the photo that's been all over newspapers is of a massive billboard that says, Russia is here forever and now in a, in a liberated town that is back in Ukrainian hands. That in and of itself kind of a reason for, for joy on, on Kiev's side, for all of us, I guess. Um, it was a retreat that was long announced almost, or long prepared. This is very interesting because it's different, for example, from Kharkiv, the um, city in, in, in Ukraine's east, where Russian troops left hastily, left behind all kinds of equipment intact. Whereas in Kherson, they either destroyed the equipment they couldn't um, bring across the other side of the Dnipro, because Ukraine very smart, um, attacked all kinds of supply lines, including bridges. So it was a retreat that was announced, including in Moscow before, as in population and army were almost prepared. This city needs to be given up. And what this actually also entails is that Russia can retreat. Putin can retreat. If he sees that it's impossible to hold on to another piece of land or city or so, they do retreat. They're willing to do that. They did. They obviously did it, leaving loads of explosives and mines behind. So it's not an easy um, retreat or an easy recapturing of the city. But it's an, it's done not in one line with Kharkiv, the other city that was liberated, but it's in line with Snake Island, for example. There was also there was an orderly-ish Russian retreat. And I don't know if this should give us hope or anything, but at least it's an indication that there's some kind of rational picture of what is happening in Ukraine, in the Kremlin, and maybe that's something to build on at any point in time. And going back to this uh, point about not being too overconfident, what does this do for national morale, Ukrainian national morale at this point? For Ukrainian national morale, it's incredible, of course, because it's this big city, because it's been symbolic for such a long time, because the fighting has ha- has taken place in its surrounding for, for months, almost. So this is big, and it also means, of course, hundreds of thousands of people are liberated from what is ugly Russian occupation. So for morale, it's an incredible boost, particularly as everyone has predicted that major offensives in that war will draw down as winter is coming. The war will continue, of course, but it's trickier given terrain to to move, to have big maneuvers of, of armored troops, for example. So to have that kind of big step that is really of both symbolic and substantial strategic value is incredible. And morale boosts like this is exactly what Ukraine, of course, needs and what Ukraine's supporters, all of us, essentially, the West delivering weapons needs as well. That's what makes it big. Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, is in London this morning. He's fresh-ish, back from Dallas. Good morning, Andrew. Uh, good morning, Todd. I think I, I was uh, a slightly croaky voice, a little bit like yours, I think, this morning. Where you've, uh, you've covered a lot more ground than me, though, in the last few days. Well, Andrew, maybe uh, impressions. Anyone who read your column uh, yesterday will certainly have a pretty good idea about what uh, un- unfolded in, in Dallas. Uh, but maybe uh, bring us uh, just your, your reviews uh, or, or, and impressions as well. A couple of days after, because I think that there was yeah, probably sort of you know, many mixed ideas, even amongst our own team. Our first time we've done an event of, uh, of, of scale in the United States. Um, and, and, and there we were on a rooftop in Dallas by, by Tuesday evening with a, a cocktail party underway. And uh, there was no turning back. 
No, what an amazing few days. I, I think it's fascinating, first of all, where Dallas sits. So many of our readers south of the US also rocked up. So many people came in from Mexico City. Uh, lots of readers also flew in from the Caribbean, from, from Portugal, from, uh, from north of the border as well, all across the US. And I think people were really, I don't know, it's all, these events are always fascinating because you bring together such an eclectic group of people whose one unifying passion really is Monocle, that, that they, they're readers to our magazine. But we had people who are in uh, the military, we had people who are in the, the food industry. And then you see these people talking to each other at the end of the day because they realise that actually there's lots of shared things between all of them. And lots, one or two, three common themes came up. It was almost everybody we spoke to, whether they were in retail or if they were in uh, the business of fitness, for example, were talking about the need to be hospitable and and welcoming people and, and holding a good reception and keeping people's eye. And that's what I think came to life over those few days in Dallas. Andrew, just um, also in, in the lead up to it, uh, there was uh, the odd letter. There weren't very many, but there were some. Yeah, there were some readers who I think were, you know, raising some questions. Why are you going to Texas? Uh, you know, why Dallas? Uh, why not? a city in the north in the pacific northwest uh, or or the northeast uh, i think that we uh, obviously responded in in the right manner uh, of course to all of those readers that we want to facilitate a discussion uh, it can happen anywhere um and and perhaps maybe as you're saying that that note that sort of note of being hospitable uh was i think very much also the tone on stage off stage as well this 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 notion of of just yeah, being able to have a discussion and dialogue, of course, knowing that we were there on the eve and the day of the midterms as well. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I did wonder what the, the tone of conversation would be and whether we would bump into politics uh, in, with a big P in 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 complicated ways but it, it wasn't really about that people did come for a meeting of minds and i think that the tone was set uh, at that cocktail reception when we were we were at the thompson hotel we were up on the roof and and um and mayor eric johnson came to welcome delegates to dallas now he's a, a black american politician he's he's uh He's a Democrat. He is very, very pro-business, though. So he, he sits really in the, the mindset of Dallas. And he made it clear that, you know, this was a city that was uh, full of change, full of opportunity, full of some key challenges as well. But also that it was a place where people came to make their fortunes, to do business. And in fact, all the people I met over the following days who, who were from Dallas, I was just struck by that. Actually, that tone of getting on with things, I really didn't bump into the frictious or fractious rather politics that you see played out on the TV. People are very, very polite and hospitable in Texas, and everybody was very engaged with a diverse range of conversations. So... You were in New York, what, six, seven weeks ago now. Of course, you, uh, you're back and forth uh, to, to this side of the channel frequently. Of course, uh, London uh, is, is one of our bases. So I'm going to set you maybe not an easy task for a Sunday morning. But your impression of where North America, well, where North America, where America is at the moment versus uh, UK uh, sandwiched in between versus Europe unity across you know all of these territories andrew or or everyone going off in their in their own direction 
Well, obviously, when you're in, in Dallas and you're in, in the US, there is not the conversation about a, a fuel crisis. They uh, seem to be on top of their inflation. So people are feeling a little bit more confident about the way the economy is going. Somewhere like Texas is, is not a state where it's, you, know, you, you have a big safety net of um, social policies or of institutions set up to help the homeless and things. So people have to get on with their lives in, in, a, in a quite brutal way sometimes. So I would say that socially, I mean, e economically, there's, it seems to be more unity and positivity than sometimes you'd read in the UK press. I think the, the, the challenge for any European who goes there is the lack of this safety net. So we were staying in an, an amazing part of town, downtown, which has revived in an extraordinary way because of the likes of uh, Sean Todd, who spoke at the conference. People have invested in, in, in regenerating this abandoned downtown. At one point, there was just 200 people living downtown. They're back to some 20,000. But I, I, I do think wherever you go in the US at the moment, you, this, this, um, this crisis of homelessness, of mental health uh, not being delivered in, in, in a way that is easily accessed, so you have lots of people on the, on the street with mental health issues as well, you don't see it in, in much of Dallas, but you do see it downtown. I think that's it's it, that's the bit that's perhaps difficult for Europeans. And the fact, I'm sorry, let me say one more thing, Tyler, is just in in Dallas, when you arrive immediately, it's quite a hard city for Europeans to read because it's so based on the car. And uh, you do kind of wonder how you, you, everyone thinks, you know, we're here in Europe, we have this debate about everywhere, and I'm looking like Copenhagen. That is never, ever, ever going to happen in Dallas. It's, it's a car city. People just do not go anywhere on public transport. So it's, 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 it's hard to read, but, I, uh, but fascinating to be there. But I, I think this divisive um, social conversation and the, the, the problems on the street are the, are the things that the, are the downs for America. And Andrew, would you highlight as well, because I think even, you know, amongst our, our own team, people who had not been to, to Dallas, you, you view a city like this through a certain lens. Uh, of course, you have to judge it on your own values and experiences. But as you, you hit it on the head here, because, of course, we can sit at conferences uh, all over the world and talk about, uh, yeah, you know, whatever, uh, a bicycle friendly city. Uh, we can talk about a big infrastructure that we want everybody on on trams. But as you said, when you look at just the sheer size of, of Dallas, that's not going to be a reality anytime soon. And at the same time, uh, when, of course, yeah, they're, of course, they're complaining about fuel prices. But as, as we sort of highlighted, many people spend some time in London, spend some time in Switzerland, and we'll talk to you about fuel prices. Uh, of course, what people are driving around in their mass, massive Chevy Suburbans um, as well. Was that maybe also one of the, the things, maybe from a European perspective, that you know, we cannot be judging these cities on Oslo, uh, Helsinki terms either? There's just no way that you can ever retrofit Dallas to be like Copenhagen because much of it was built you know, post-car and there was an embracing of the car in, in a huge way that we, you, know, you just don't see in any European city. You know, when you're in the centre of the city, we went to visit a, a developer just before we left, me and Chris, and we were in his um, office tower looking out over the city. And you realise that right in the centre of the city, you're sitting in, a, in, in the midst of a, a patchwork of, of eight-lane highways. And the idea that you're going to be able to beautify all these and take them down and make them into nice walkways, there's just too much of 
that concrete and too much of that flat kind of parking space uh, available. So this is, is going to be tricky, but people are doing positive things. People are, you know, are trying to insert kind of pocket parts and things into the urban environment, and there are places where that's happening. But it's when you go to the leafier northern suburbs of Dallas that you see when it's a bit wealthier how American lifestyle is pretty appealing for the people who sit in that 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 kind of echelon. But also just on that on that car thing, Tyler, we we heard on stage from Tanner Krauss, who's the the CEO of Come and Go, which is a is a convenience store matched with petrol stations, uh, which is unfolding across the U.S. And he pointed out that they're rapidly opening. You know, 400 convenience stores connected to petrol stations. And I said to him afterwards, I said, you know, are you concerned that in places like L.A., of course, where you're not present, but there they're talking about the, the, the end of the petrol station because of the banning of petrol cars after, I think it's 2035. And he's, well, yeah, maybe, but I, I, that's not happening here yet. So I think we just have to accept that these big American cities are having a, a very different narrative. Andrew, you mentioned, of course, uh, the, the appeal of, of areas like Highland Park, etc. Um, and and we, 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 there were many of us piled into, I think, a big Chevy Suburban uh, driving around. And it was at the appeal of the, um, of the pumpkin patches that... Uh, it seemed to be cascading down uh, every every staircase. There was a there was a competition on it, I guess, which I've never seen anything like it. Maybe in the pages of Martha Stewart Living, uh, where you have some elegantly carved pumpkins. But this was this was like a completely different level. It was it was really who could outgun their neighbors with more pumpkins. You know, various tones as well. Uh, you know, all up and down their driveways. Uh, so I'm just wondering what's happening um, on on your stoop this morning as well. Well, I think Ariel, our colleague who was in the car, she described it as a, a pumpkin pile-up because many of these many of these houses, they had instead of like you see here in Europe, like one little carved pumpkin outside a house, they had like two, three hundred pumpkins outside their houses, which stay in place until the Christmas lights go up. And we already saw some houses decorating with the Christmas lights as well. But you know, when you're in those North Dallas suburbs where the, where the wealth sits, there wasn't a leaf on a lawn, there wasn't an unpolished car, there wasn't a decrepit house on any street. It was extraordinary to see that manicured perfection and a tiny thing on that title. We, I think we both were struck by the way men dress in, in the South is again, it's like, as you said, there is no athleisure at, at dinner anywhere in Dallas. People all turn up in a jacket, all turn up with a, a polished shoe and a good shirt. Indeed. And I want to bring in Marcus because at the top of the program, Marcus, you, you were discussing the shift in terms of what is happening, and we've seen over the past week, you know, significant layoffs uh, at, at Meta, uh, of course. We don't know what is going to happen uh, with with Twitter, uh, but they seem to be getting it from all angles at the moment. One of the discussions that we had in Dallas, uh, we had a uh, one title, uh, the title Garden and Gun, uh, which is run out of Charleston, very, very successful magazine, uh, also with, it, with a digital proposition as well. We also heard from Justin Smith. Uh, he's one of the founders of... Uh, and he's running uh, the the new digital news brand Semaphore, and it was interesting because you heard about the success of doing things, you know, in print with Garden and Gun, close to half a million circulation. You've got someone else sort of venturing out into the world, not chasing it, you know, not chasing digital subscriptions, but also wanting to go out there and get advertisers, good old advertisers, as as a digital brand. Do we? You know, were you sort of hinting at a bit of a, a moment of reckoning um, that that we're sitting at? You know, been, we've been through, of course. 
two years where digital's done very well, but we've seen a flattening out as 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 you know we discussed this in St. Gallen as well. What's happening with e-commerce, etc. So where are we sitting at the end of 2022, moving towards 23? Uh, reality kicks in again. And I think what's happening is, I mean, look at the the, the revenue streams. 98% of Meta's income is advertisement. It's 95% still with with uh, with Alphabet. So the idea not putting it on advertisement, I I wouldn't do that. And I just heard a colleague of mine who was giving a speech and he was saying, advertising is here to stay, but the, the way that we do it is changing. And I think that we're getting more and more real about how, how consumers and how people want to consume advertisement. Of course, it's information. But the question is on which kind of media you want to have it, where do you want to have it, where do you choose to get informed? And this whole business models that even need to be proven that they're real, like Twitter, for instance, they might be changing their model because of the reason the users don't want it like they were pushed to it. So if the user is not the data and not the, and not the product, you need to change a lot of your thinking. And this is, I think, what is behind the whole discussion when you look at between Apple and all the other ideas around privacy and consent and all that stuff. From a point of view of a marketeer, I would try to engage my customer. I would try to move him much, much, much forward into either personal engagement, mental engagement, but getting him with the topics, with the content again. And this is, I think, what is going to be bouncing back in the next, let's say, 12 months. Prove me next year. (laughs) And it's interesting also, Andrew, just the amount of time you spend in vehicles. So we can, of course, be talking about the importance of digital channels. But my goodness, when you're going down those highways, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and bypasses, etc. In a city like Dallas, the importance of out of home, I would say, what you know, what has really sort of struck me, it wasn't you know looking at my phone and seeing what was popping up on screen, uh, but it's the big ads for big insurance um, along the highways, isn't it, Andrew? Well, it's, it's, it's the kind of uh, print version of what you see on the a- adverts on TV that, you know, well, I was struck by just coming in from the airport, there was a huge billboard which said, you know, lock up your guns and cut the suicide rate. Another one which uh, said that somebody, a lawyer who said that he'd won some $50 million for somebody who'd had a, a, a brain injury and underline it said, underneath it said, have you been hit by a truck? So it was uh, trying to court more advertising. So it's, it's, it's a very direct world as you drive in from the airport and you see those out-of-home out posters. And, and also, and there's that, and then again, we've been hearing you know, the death knell for television, like radio, for a very long time. And, and, and the same thing, I was reflecting with Andrew Marcus, that you, know, you can be you know, watching television. Andrew, the one thing that stood up for us, so there's, there's this running campaign for... Uh, if if you were a civilian worker at uh, at Camp Lejeune in the United States, uh, there was there was a, a groundwater problem where uh, yeah fuel tanks had uh, uh, had uh, yeah contaminated the water. But Andrew, this must have been like every third ad and different different legal entities as well trying to get people to of course you know uh, contact them uh, and for them to of course represent represent their their case but i guess that's the other thing when you watch us television just the sheer amount of on one side i don't want to call it ambulance chasing but it's, it's a little bit that and pharma at the same time i mean just think where would american media be without pharma 
and also Tyler, we caught the tail end of the advertising for the for the midterms, and how aggressive are the, are the U.S. political ads? There's not one who who comes up with a this is what I'm going to do for you. you know, they first of all have to knock out their try and knock out their their opponent with a punch, and there I, I saw people being accused of not being in America long enough to have an opinion, of people being criminals. <laughs> they were they were all pretty brutal, but entertaining to watch as well. Absolutely. And we're going to come back to you uh, in a moment and just ask uh, what's outstanding uh, in, in the UK pages or what struck you after a couple of days in the US. But uh, Benno, you uh, you highlighted a couple of things. Uh, we You talked a little bit in the intro about the easing uh, of uh, Corona, of course, restrictions in China. But, you know, it's it's not sort of throwing up, open the streets and uh, take your masks off quite yet. Certainly not. And that makes sense given, well, Chinese COVID numbers, but also the political system. There's been anticipation of China or Xi Jinping particularly um, easing COVID rules for quite a while, for example, around the party congress, which didn't happen. And now it's, well, China's quite good at the step-by-step kind of approach to many things. And this time around, it will be step-by-step as well. So I think it decreases the mandatory quarantine um, when immigrating into the country from seven days to five days plus an additional three days of isolation at home. So it's really baby steps. I think travel within the country is getting slightly easier. Maybe all that required mass testing several times a week to go essentially anywhere to work, to groceries and such, um, is slightly easing as well. I think it makes sense. Everyone was wondering whether Xi Jinping, who has enacted all these strict rules, is ever able to kind of admit that he may have been going slightly overboard and thus kind of by by easing admitting that it was a bit too strict that's why it's a step-by-step thing i think i don't assume tourists flocking into china anytime soon i don't assume um, masks to disappear at all which to be fair to a limited extent is maybe decent given given the system so yeah but it was in a week full of such surprising news if you will it was one of them mm. andrew uh, just uh, what's uh, what sort of hit you over the head now that you're back in uh, in in london well, it's not a, a very exciting front page uh, series here today. Uh, we're waiting for Thursday when Jeremy Hunt will be announcing what the government is going to do to fill this huge financial black hole that we have. And uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, who had helped create at least half of it, has been pretending that it's got nothing to do with him and the former Prime Minister Liz Truss. But they, they are going to be making some swinging cuts. So what's interesting is that the papers on the right are saying, be careful, because if you go in for a world of tax hikes and of cutting services, you will be no different to Keir Starmer. And, and then when an election happens, people will go for the Labour leader and the Labour Party over you. So a bit of a debate on, on, the, on the papers there. And there is a there is a there's been a bit of a leaking of, of what what's ahead and it certainly seems that they're going to change the tax thresholds to get more money there they're going to raid corporate tax they're going to try and make sure that people pay more death duties for example so we'll see what happens and whether some of these are just being floated as ideas but i think it looks like it's going to be a pretty tough uh, budget that's coming our way this week and, and the uk economy in recession of course and just before we go uh, you're going to be heading uh, to uh Heathrow or City, I'm not sure which airport, but anyway, you're coming to Zurich uh, tomorrow uh, anyway, because um, we're having a very special lunch, aren't we, tomorrow? 
The weird things that you do when you're at Monaco, we are being given away as a prize tomorrow, you and me, oh, well, on Monday, as a, as, a, as a lunch, which was an amazing thing. Where Again, the conference in Paris, uh, we raise money for charity and this uh, very nice woman has paid several thousand euros to have the, the pleasure of yourself and myself uh, at lunch tomorrow. So I'm really looking forward to it. But she's very kindly invited the, the, the people who came second as well. So, Well, that um, was amazing. You had second. these two women sort of bidding for, for lunch. So we're going to Kroner Hollow tomorrow. But I think it was, they're paying 3,000. They paid 3,000 just for the, the privilege of having lunch. And of course, as Andrew said, uh, this, uh, this is going to uh, Reporter Sans Frontières, uh, the, the charity that we're supporting but uh, and we have to put on a good show tomorrow you've got to polish your shoes I, I'm, I've got I'm post Dallas I, I'm going to be like so spick and span you can't believe it no space for Stetson's <laughs> at Cronin Hollow though just so you know Andrew Tuck will see you tomorrow uh, Emma Nelson Thank is uh, back in London uh, with the news headlines Thank you very much indeed Tyler the Democrats have kept majority control of the US Senate after winning a race in the state of Nevada the results show the best midterm performance for a sitting party in two decades in the US Ukrainian officials have warned that the war is not over after Russia's withdrawal from Kherson. Russian soldiers were seen leaving the only regional capital taken by Moscow on Friday. At least two people are now known to have died after two planes collided mid-air at a World War II airshow in Dallas. A Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress bomber and a Bell P-63 King Cobra fighter collided and crashed at the Wings Over Dallas airshow at Dallas Executive Airport. And a member of the Swiss National Council has called for more to be done to protect donkeys from loneliness. The FDP National Councillor Anna Giacometti wants a change in the law to make sure donkeys have more social contact with their peers. Horses don't count as adequate companions. Back to you, Tyler in Zurich, and many thanks for that story. You're welcome. Well, listen, (laughs) thanks to Blick for that story uh, as well. Uh, What what do you make of that? And do do you think that this is, you know, Switzerland is at the forefront when it comes to donkey rights? Or, of course, you're sort of our unofficial sort of um, farmyard uh, (laughs) editor as as well. Uh, Are you seeing... Can I put that on my business card? I think we we could add that to your business card. Are you seeing trends, Emma Nelson, elsewhere in the world in terms of, of donkey rights and, 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 and donkey equity? Well, I didn't go in that direction when I was doing further research on the subject, because obviously one has to. I think this is the first time I've ever um, searched for Google's donkey separation anxiety for the first time. Um, and it is a real thing. They get very, very, very upset. They're desperately social and they need a companion the whole time. And if you don't put your donkey with a buddy, it hyperventilates it gallops and it tries to escape from its confines so frankly this is a this is quite an important thing here we are we're now learning amazing bits of information thanks to your discovery in blick um this is actually a story about it's from the animal welfare act which is is currently do, you know it, it being looked at in switzerland and apparently there is a clause that provides for horses to have a pal to keep them happy. But the fact remains is that people were thinking that donkeys and horses are the same, and apparently they're not. So they, there's this like little loophole that, that this um, Madame Giacometti wants to have closed to ensure that donkeys don't get, don't get lonely. We should say that um, Signora Giacometti has yeah. some skin in the game, not donkey skin, hopefully, but you never no. know, because it said she used to have a farm, so I'm not sure what happened with the donkeys. But anyway, this is a very, very important issue for her, but they were, it was amazing that they were talking about that, you know, 
the social contract, as you said, and they do talk about a social contract for horses is very different than uh, what's on offer for donkeys. Why are we talking about this? It's rather strange. Um, given the fact that we just talked, you know, you and Andrew were just talking about cost of living and crisis and what have you. And you said, you know, this is, a, you know, huge issues in, in, in Switzerland as, as much as it is a part of the rest of the world. Is there, a, is there a sort of a strong surge for animal welfare in Switzerland that perhaps that we need to know about? We're going to talk a little bit later. We're talking to, to Miriam Zimbul uh, about uh, her, her new film, which, of course, is The World of Cheese. And, of course, that's obviously going to involve cows. Uh, but, I mean, let me, let me bring, uh, well, bring Benno in, uh, not uh, our, our, our uh, animal rights uh, correspondent. But, uh, but, it, it, but, it, it, but listen, it, it, is, it is part of the agenda frequently because, obviously, you know, the, the more, the, well, there's a lot, Emma, this has a lot to do with subsidies in, in okay. this country. This, this is, a, this is a, big, a big part of it um, and also becomes um, sort of it's a theme in the national dialogue quite frequently. Well, this is, this is delightful to know. All I do know is that if you can, while you're trying to find your donkey, a pal, um, because donkeys mourn if they lose their, 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 their beloved companion. I have really been looking into this for you, Tyler. Um, apparently, you can replace it with a goat temporarily. But you can't re- you can't replace it with a horse. That just does not happen. <laughs> and not good, not easy bedfellows. Now, just be- before we go on that, also donkey therapy is very not, not therapy for the donkeys. <laughs> but if let's let's say you have a bad turn, uh, Emma, and uh, and and you feel look, at, I've just I've really come to the end of my tether. You can of course go for for donkey therapy, um, and that's where you know we would send you to a farm. Thank you. Um, and, <laughs> Thank you and, so and much. Then, and then you spend you know you spend time grooming the donkeys, talking to the donkeys, etc. And if you look it up, I mean, there's a there's a lot of I don't know if it's a racket or what it is, but there's a lot of donkey therapy in have Switzerland. You, have you been looking? this up <laughs> clearly the both of you have been googling yeah. way too much I, I documentation I, was gonna, I, was gonna, I, I had to look but listen you know maybe i want to check myself in over the over the holidays <laughs> emma I, I should just say as well that um someone who will probably be closer to the likes of uh, of uh, ms giacometti and many others yes. we were sort of hinting at the top of the program this is ben Zog's last monocle on sunday in his current monocle security correspondent role because Benazog heads to burn. I mean, it's not like you'd not been before, but uh, but tell us about your new gig. He might he might still make an appearance uh, on on whatever other daily programs, but he is um he he's got a hand in uh yeah. Do you have do you have a business card? Do you ever you ever got that far? I do have a business card indeed. Okay, yeah, good. It well, hasn't been widely used, but okay. yes, I have okay, a well, business card which is obviously beautifully designed. Absolutely. I, ho- I hope I hope that uh, the Department of Defense, I'm giving it away now, has something similar. Tell us about your new gig. <laughs> well, I'm heading to Bern, but yeah, I've been there before. It's just an hour's train ride away. Um, but from December on, I'll be working for the Swiss Ministry of Defense in the field of strategy and international affairs. So the topics that I've covered as security correspondent here on Monocle, European security, war and peace in the world um, will keep me busy. Um, Not that that's a happy topic, but it's an interesting one. Things are moving and Switzerland's role in all of that, Switzerland's position in Europe, how we deal with neutrality, how our own defence posture should be like. These are obviously the big questions here. So I'll be very curious to to keep dealing with that. I'll be in a in a position that's kind of at the intersection between politics, as in parliaments, um, between the leadership of the of the ministry, but also other more technical institutions there. And I think being at the intersection, communicating certain strategic questions or technical matters or so in a format that is uh, more approachable, in a format that's more strategic, is something I enjoy and that I'm looking forward to. 
But obviously with the world of Monocle, you cannot fully leave it anyway. I may be an official soon, um, but I'll be happy to have further interactions. And if there's any urgency at Monocle to talk about Switzerland's defense posture or late, latest um, armaments purchase or so, I'll, I'll still be there. Excellent. Are you, you're excited about that, aren't you, Emma? Well, um, Benno, it has been an absolute delight to have you as, as happy companions for the last few years here in Monocle on Sunday especially and to have you on the Globalist as well. You always know that there's going to be a wonderful bit of interesting human context every time you open your mouth. But I must confess, Tyler, we better start rolling out the donkeys because we're going <laughs> to get separation anxiety once he's gone. Well, well, we are. I mean, I wonder if maybe also, you know, li- likewise, Benno and maybe Ms. Giacometti uh, in, in Bern uh, <laughs> can find a deskmate uh, for you as well. But Ben, I was going to say, we, we when we were talking about the conference, uh, we had... Uh, uh, Jacques Pillou, the the, uh, the Swiss ambassador to the United States, uh, it was it was very interesting being with him in in Dallas. It was incredible how many of these men from the U.S. South were saying that they they all had man crushes on uh, on the Swiss ambassador because uh, you know, first he he sort of shows up. Emma, you would have liked this pin that he had, so he sort of he swaggers into the cocktail, mm. and he's got an he's got a pin of an F thirty five. So of course this is the aircraft that uh, Switzerland oh. is purchasing to replace their F 18s But it's 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 in red and white. It's got of course white crosses on it, etc. But it, here's what's amazing when you think about the role of an ambassador. And, and it was just funny. I think he was very sort of, you know, fast off the mark to accept uh, our invitation to come and speak in, uh, in, in Dallas. And we wanted to talk about it. You know, we thought, OK, let's talk about apprenticeships. And, and this is Switzerland's soft power role and, and teaching lifelong skills. That's one part of it. And they've got some initiatives in Houston that they're doing. Uh, but I think, you know, he, he was really there because in many ways, a big component of the F-35 is built into. Texas, um, and it was interesting talking about the offsets and 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 really the role that this particular ambassador has as well is very much of, of course about procurement and uh, and obviously uh, the relationship with the defense establishment in the country as well. It's obviously a fascinating realization that Switzerland is strong when it comes to soft power, but a certain hard power element is there as well. And it's a it's a proud tradition, of course, to have a strong army, a neutral that is able to defend itself in the heart of Europe. That's kind of the history of it. And with much um, public attention and debate around it, Switzerland did decide to purchase American-made F-35. I wasn't aware that factories are in Texas. They're also assembled in northern Italy, for example, so it's certainly a multinational project, if you will. Um, And Switzerland, when having this kind of fleet, will be increasingly interoperable with a number of neighbours and other partners that have the same kind of model. But it has become this core element, of course, of of US-Switzerland relations. I've attended myself an event in Bern uh, around it. And it is is tricky. You mentioned offsets, which which means that a certain amount of the contract money needs to be spent in Switzerland for suppliers to maintain a bit of a technological base in Switzerland. So it's a very tricky issue. It may even relate to apprenticeships and uh, vocational training, of which uh, Switzerland is proud of in terms of soft power. So I'm not too surprised to see that, but I can I can obviously visualize the F-35 fighter jet with a Swiss cross on it as a pin at, at a diplomat's um, suit. So this is all quite fitting and, and fairly in line with Brand Switzerland. Emma, I'm quite convinced next time we see Benno, um, he's going to be sporting one of those F-35 <laughs> 
pins, um, no, no doubt. Uh, time to uh, head to uh, to Istanbul uh, right now. Our uh, North Africa and uh, France correspondent, uh, Mary Fitzgerald, uh, is there for us. Uh, good morning, Mary. Good morning, Connor. Uh, let's uh, maybe uh, just maybe carry on this uh, theme because probably one of the main stories that we've seen, well, at least the, the, the theme of, of all things defense related, uh, because there was quite a high profile story, may have not hit the pages everywhere around the world. But this is, you could say, sort of the ongoing demobilization uh, of, of France's uh, ventures in the Sahel uh, and, and now standing down uh, yet a, another deployment um, of, of troops, obviously, so, uh, certainly a story that uh, you've been uh, covering and have been very close to. Yes, indeed. Um, this uh, is basically the, the the winding down of Operation Barkhan, um, which uh, was launched in 2013 um, in in Mali. And actually, I was in Mali that year. Um, and uh, listeners will probably remember that when French forces drove the jihadists out of Timbuktu, in particular, there was you know widespread welcome for this. Um, there was a very much kind of pro-French sentiment on the ground. There was a lot of gratitude towards Paris and. That but all these years later, and you know, at one point there were as many as 5,500 French troops um, taking part in Operation Background. All these years later, things have changed um, considerably. Uh, we see the continuing spread um, in the in the wider Sahel region of, of groups linked to Al-Qaeda and so-called Islamic State, um, a growing number of uh, French troop casualties. So back home in France, it became more and more of a political liability. And also, I think, on a wider level, what was interesting is to see the... Um, Increasing hostility uh, towards France amongst local populations in, in the Sahel. Now, this has been fanned by um, social media, uh, disinformation campaigns, particularly uh, Russian-backed disinformation campaigns. Um, so this is kind of part, I think, of a wider challenge that Paris faces in what it considered to be its spheres of influence in Francophone Africa. And when we think about what has driven this, and on one, you, you mentioned a couple of, let's say, currents that would have would have informed this. But of course, if you're if you're back in Paris, uh, if you are uh, yeah, on the front lines when it comes to domestic security, uh, and then you see this demobilization, you know, happening. We're talking about jihadism here. What, what does that mean domestically back home? Uh, is is it welcome, do you think, on one side, because this means, okay, it's cost savings at a time of austerity all over Europe, uh, that you don't have this mass deployment of troops and all of the uh, the expenses that go with it, but at the same time, uh, the, the problem uh, has, has is not going away either. Indeed, and I think, you know, in, in Paris, there were increasing questions regarding the viability of the campaign and the, the cost-benefit analysis of, of this particular campaign. And given the rising number of French military casualties, I think, you know, a lot of people were basically questioning uh, what was the point of this continuing operation. I think on a wider level, and it has been fascinating, there was a, a long read in Le Monde um, a couple of weeks ago about... France is increasingly strained relations with countries in Francophone Africa and kind of dissecting the reasons for, for why that is happening. But it's something that Paris is, is sufficiently concerned about that it recently appointed um, a representative for public diplomacy who will focus specifically on Africa to try and counter those anti-French narratives and that mounting anti-French sentiment on the ground.
Mary, you're in Istanbul today, but uh, of course your your normal uh, patch is uh, is Marseille, and just uh, of course uh, along the coast is is Toulon, and uh, we've again have another high profile story, of course, this week, uh, and this is about uh, France accepting a ship, of course, one which was being blocked um, in in Italy, uh, and and now uh, some rather sharp words, um, and and mood, of course, uh, between between Paris and Rome. Indeed. I mean, this is um, not really new in terms of the relations between France and Italy regarding migration have been there for, for several years. Of course, now with the, the new government in Italy, Giorgio Maloney from the from the far right, um, who's who's counting a lot on kind of fueling even more anti-immigration sentiment in, in Italy. And this <clears throat> latest episode um, <clears throat> uh, basically uh, is, is rooted in this um, a, a group of migrants who were basically stranded in the Mediterranean were rescued by an NGO uh, ship, and basically the Italians refused to allow that ship dock in Italy, and the French have stepped in and basically kind of used that to claim a kind of a high moral ground, if you like, over the Italians. But I think the the wider issue here and a primary focus of my work is Libya, which of course remains the main transit point for migrants trying to get to Europe. A bigger issue here is how to address long term that question of irregular migration coming to Europe. Countries uh, like Italy, Italy spe- specifically, have felt that they've been at the vanguard of this and that they have been basically shouldering a burden that is rather unfair, given that other European countries haven't actually stepped up in, in terms of this issue. Mary, just before we uh, we go, you have a number of stories, but uh, maybe just give us the flavor from uh, Istanbul, a city that we don't uh, check in uh, with nearly uh, enough. Of course, again, uh, a place that you've been to uh, many, many times. We don't have to get into maybe uh, the political ins and outs and uh, the differences between Istanbul and, uh, and Ankara's leadership, uh, but just uh, the mood on the street this morning. Well, you know, Istanbul has long been one of my favorite cities. I, I lived here briefly for a period. And every time I visit, I, I notice how the Istanbul I knew and loved, and I still love Istanbul. But it, that's changing. It's disappearing. Um, lots of changes here. We're seeing in, in different neighborhoods, you know, some of the older Istanbul, if you like, being demolished um, in favor of, of, of shopping malls, chain stores, which I think risks... Um, basically making parts of Istanbul like, like any other uh, major city across the world and and removing what made it, it special. It's very striking here uh, right now to see how uh, inflation is really hurting Turks. The lira is really under pressure. Um, hotels, etc., have raised their prices. Not as many tourists coming as before. So there's a real sense of, of struggle here in terms of difficult new economic realities. Mary Fitzgerald, our North Africa and uh, South of France correspondent, but in Istanbul for us today. Thanks very much for that. It's at 10.48, coming up to 10.49 here in Zurich. We're going away for a very short break. When we come back, we'll be talking all things cheese-related. Portugal has plenty more to offer visitors than sun, sea and sand. With its vibrant cities, rolling vineyards and incredible history of design and a resourcefulness that always amazes. It's a fun place to eat. I mean, like, you just don't stop. It's sunny and it's warm and everything's outside. Like, it's great. Portugal, the Monocle Handbook is the first in a brand new series revealing our favorite places to eat, stay and shop from Lisbon to the Azores. Should you wish to stay a little longer, it will also help you find a neighborhood that could become your new base and introduce you to the people who have already put down roots.
Head to monocle.com to find out more and prepare to see this fascinating nation afresh. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Uh, of course, Bennett's August here, Marcus uh, Shogel as well. Marcus, uh, as our listeners uh, will know, uh, of course, uh, is in the world of marketing. Uh, you can uh, hear the, the the sort of the crinkle uh, right now of foil being opened. Uh, there's a whole cheese platter on, on the table. But Marcus, I want you to put this in perspective for us right now. You know, people sort of you know, laugh about, uh, of course, you know, Switzerland cheese, the cliches. But when it comes to marketing and advertising spend, uh, this, is, this is something that, that if you're a media brand you get quite excited about because this country spends a lot to promote all things dairy. Well, yes, they do. They're very much organized. The dairy industry and even the, the farmers are pretty strong when you come down to dairy products. But what I like most is... Um, I know this is going to be, it's mouthwatering if you could see what is on that plate. But um, just remember, there's a brand called Appenzeller, which is promoted by Collaborative. And they've got one of the most successful cheese campaigns, I think, in Europe. The recipe is, is known to nobody. And it works tremendously well to put that brand forward. And I'm always an ambassador to that brand because I think with all the innovation around us, there should be some tradition and there should be some taste in life. And bringing that to life in Switzerland, I think, is a very important part, not with the innovative part and not the mountains and not the, not the Zugspitze, but it's really something, you know, Germans have bread, Swiss have cheese. So I take the cheese. Well, I'm very happy to say that uh, Miriam Zimbul is here. She is the producer uh, and, uh, of course, behind uh, Master of Cheese, the story of Willi uh, Schmidt. Uh, and, and this is uh, really a, a story uh, which, of course, uh, has played out on screens and, uh, and been uh, shortlisted in the official circle as well. Toronto, uh, Innsbruck, uh, Southern California, Newport Beach, etc. Good morning. Welcome. Very Good nice morning. to see you. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, so let's uh, maybe rewind. Uh, let's spool back and uh, and tell us why uh, you decided to uh, to make a film uh, about this producer, but also why it managed to capture the imagination of film juries around the world. Well, here is the thing. I did not choose to make the film. The film somehow came to me. Um, I, it was, I used to work for Swiss National Television and it was my last day there. And I kind of happily left the job and I was ready for a new adventure. And then on the last day, we were filming in Liechtenstein where he has his dairy. And I was very tired. I didn't want to go. I was in a miserable mood, which I'm usually not. And then I entered the, his diary. And just seeing him work with the milk... It took me five minutes to realize that this was the biggest story, that it was, you know, my, my family comes from farming. My grandparents were farmers, so it was very common to me to see somebody work with the milk. But the way he worked, the way he tasted the milk, like he tasted the milk and he could tell me where the cows were eating the grass. And I thought, oh, that's something. <laughs> That was 10 years ago. No, again, there's people probably uh, listening to this maybe in New Zealand or, or waking up uh, very early on the uh, on the North American uh, East Coast and thinking, well, this is obviously a, a very typical Swiss story and someone whose ex-Swiss uh, television could get excited about this. But again, if you could maybe sort of take us, and we're going to listen to a, a short clip in a second, but mm -hmm. uh, but maybe just tell us what what captures the imagination though i think when other people have, have seen this well you have to understand that the way he works yes he works like with traditional methods 
He works more traditional than any other cheesemaker I have seen in my life. He just listens and follows the rules of the na- of of what nature, you know, basically gives him. But he works like an artist. So in a way, and this sounds a bit odd, but he listens to the milk and he feels the milk. He does not rely on thermometers when to say when the milk is ready. No, 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 he feels it. So that's a lot of handwork. He's a true craftsman. But to me, I also have to say he's an artist. We had in Innsbruck, we had this viewing and there were lots of cheesemakers and farmers there. And I thought for them, it's just more of the same. Oh, no, they had a billion questions. And they said, you know, what? So you don't mix the different milks? And he said, no, every milk is unique. And why would I want to mix that? So he really is like a painter paints with different shades of blues he, he he somehow works with different shades and different flavors of milks and he knows it well, well this is a let's ha- we'll have a listen but and this is going to be a, in part an exercise about the craft it's also mm-hmm. just for our other listeners as well just this is what uh, really this is what swiss german sounds like mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, there you go. That was a, a, a very sort of you know, brief, brief snapshot, if, if nothing, a little bit of a, a linguistic uh, lesson uh, <laughs> as well. But uh, what's been the reception? As I said, obviously, very well received in, in, uh, in, in film circles. But do we have any, um, any sort of uh, economic measures uh, in terms of what this has also done? Because this is, you're talking about someone who's got a limited production. We're not talking about someone who's backed by Nestle here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we talk about an artisan. Uh, it's not like he can suddenly go and find another, th- well, maybe he could find another thousand cows. But he but, doesn't. No, but he doesn't no, want, he can't. of no, course. No, no, he can't. He can only produce and only sell as much as he has. The thing is that he cannot sell more. He's always selling. He's always selling out. That's basically saying like he never has any cheeses left over. So um, what I have to say, the the reception, I'm very happy how well it was received because it was quite a fight. Ten years is a long time to sit with a film and be with the film. Um, It was not very, while we were, while we were filming it, like we didn't, we hardly got any, any support. It was really something that we also had to fight for. But that's how also his story is like he lost everything twice in his life, but he just knew that his talent and the drive that he had, that he just couldn't up. He had no other choice to give up. So to get, uh, to get back to the, how it's received, what I love most is that everybody is deeply, deeply moved. So I have, I have farmers crying <laughs> in the cinema and it is very beautiful. And I think what it really is, is that Willi Schmidt, the way he works with nature, hand in hand with nature, but also what he produces with so much love and attention uh, is something that we all crave that. We all have sort of have a, um, what's the word? We have a, a longing for that. So this is also how we try to make the film, to really touch people and to make them really understand in order to have a good artisanal product, it takes time, it takes patience, it takes also caring for your community. He can only do, his, his cheese is only as good as healthy as the meadow is, as happy as the cow are, but also the farmers. He pays them twice the amount of uh let's say a big industrial player plays so the farmer has enough uh 
also money and time to really care for the meadows, but also for for the cows and for the family. Well, speaking of longing, I think that uh, that Marcus and Benno are, are going to sort oh, of yeah, re- reach reach in. reach across the table <laughs> uh, as well and wanted to. I, I would imagine that we, of course, we have some of his production here yes. uh, in 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 front of us. I, I would imagine as well that in terms of probably prices internationally, I could imagine Japanese food halls, etc., and probably many others are trying to get their hands on this. Oh, they as will you go said, crazy. Yeah. yeah, and as you said, it, it is it is very very uh, very limited. Benno, fan of cheese. Absolutely. I enjoy that. I enjoy both the Appenzeller that, that Marcus mentioned earlier, but also looking across the table. It looks delicious. A bit of a blue cheese, more something that looks more parmigiano-like. It's gorgeous. And Marcus, uh, just uh, <laughs> as you're sort of licking your chops over there as well, I mean, you you, you, you planted a flag for Germany and, and bread, but uh, Germany and cheese, no, it, that's... Yeah. Yeah, or well, then you go, then you come down. To be honest, you come down to Gouda or Emmentaler, and then you're straight away in other countries again. Yeah. No, what I think is so amazing when he said that he's um, inventing cheese mm-hmm. by the recombination of pure stuff. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's that's amazing. That's exactly where where innovation comes from: recombining stuff that you have already and getting creative about it. And, and to this day, he has not written down one recipe. So he does it all with intuition, okay. and that's he what should I do find a book. pretty crazy. He should do a book. Then oh, I know. Like well, we and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be probably another documentary uh, series on other artisan crafts. Well, we're going to have to leave it there today. Ben Otzog, Marcus Schogel, Emma Nelson back in London. Also, my thanks to Mary Fitzgerald and Miriam Zimbul as well. Our producers today were Desiree Bandley and Emma Nelson. Our studio manager in Zurich, Desiree again, and back in London, Adam Heaton. I'm Tyler Burley. Monocle on Sunday returns next week at the very same time. We'll see you then. Have a good week. Goodbye. <laughs>